Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcasts. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Miranda Dikonski, and she is a, a CS executive and CCO. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Stuart. And I guess I should say happy belated birthday. Uh, yeah, you got that. Uh, yep, only a few days ago. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, what is, so what, what is business? What is business? Yeah. Is that the question? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess business is, golly, you're going deep right out of the gate, Stuart. Um, it depends on who you ask, but I would just define it as like a transaction between two entities, two people. Um, you know, either money in exchange for a service or service in exchange for a service, mm. um, something like that. What's I think the, that's how I. Yeah. What's the biggest thing that you've learned about business, particularly like on the people side uh, recently? How, what are some kind of really important things that you've learned over the years about uh, what a business is and how to do it effectively? Yeah, I would say. People matter more than I think most leaders, you know, give credit when they're thinking about their business plan. I'm going to give you an example. So people generally follow leaders or missions of companies that inspire them. At least a, a lot of the, the folks that I work with uh, here in, in Silicon Valley, that seems to be the truth for. So when... You know, a few months ago, many of us went through the whole SVB crisis um, where Friday morning we found ourselves without access to our money and payroll was payroll deadline was just around the corner and looming. And, you know, I was leading the team trying to figure out how in the hell are we going to make payroll? And. Um, oh, there you are. Yeah, how in the hell are we going to make payroll? And we got in front of the company and let them know, uh, this is what we're doing. This is the gap. Here's where we are. We may not be able to make payroll, but we're going to work really hard and try to do so. We actually had team members raise their hand and say that they could delay their paycheck if they needed to. Mm. And that speaks right there to the power of having a strong mission, being honest with your people, and treating them like adults and not hiding behind the scenes. Um, it blew me away. And I'm actually on a Zoom video almost choking up and crying because I couldn't believe people were raising their hands saying, I can delay my paycheck. I can delay my paycheck. Mm. That was a big learning moment for me in business with humans. Um, and so how, how do you, so there's this ideal that we have for business uh, there's the ideal that we have for how to conduct ourselves around other people. Uh, and then there's the actual reality of how we actually conduct, conduct, how do you like bridge that gap? And that, that also just not like in the, in the, just how, how we do business together with other people, but it also kind of like 
in in terms of looking at the future, having an ideal future, um, and then and then mapping the present to the future. Um, what like what tools do you use to do that, or how do you think about those questions about how to you know you got this ideal in your head, but how do you actually match the ideal with so many people when there's so many people? So I think when you're saying ideal. I want to make sure I'm understanding what you're asking me. So like our vision of how people should behave in business, is that what you're asking me? Yeah. Or just how or, things should play out? Yeah, just like, you know, as human beings, we have all these kind of projections about the way things should be. Um, and then the way, there are the way things are. And oftentimes the way they are versus the way things should be is very different. Um, and then there, and then that's one thing. And then not to mention that everybody has their own vision of what things are and then what things should be as well. Um, and so like all these just projections that are going on everywhere, how do you kind of manage that? Um, and do you have anything interesting to say about that? Well, I mean, I, the older, I think the older I get, the more I realize that it's important to have a plan, but it's also important to know that the plan could fail and probably will fail. And you should be flexible and have, you know, contingency plans to back it up. Um, so anytime you insert humans into any part of your business or process, there are, there's the human component, the personalities, the personal wants and desires, all of those things come into play in your business plan. So I, I would just say for me, my my learning from this and what I tell folks is, as leaders is just to learn how to be flexible, understand what your team members care about and want, what motivates them, you know, what doesn't, uh, and, and try to meet people in the middle as much as you possibly can, but know that mistakes will happen, that personal desires and wants are going to come into play in your day-to-day -day business and, and how you're trying to function and operate. It's never going to be perfect. But that's what makes it fun, right? That's what makes the, the building of a startup, uh, which is what I do, a lot of fun. Um, and I would also say without all of those, you know, human wants and needs and personas and, and people and all of that gobbledygook that you, we put in, we would be missing perspectives in our business. So I'm a huge advocate for making sure you have multiple perspectives at the table when you're building out any kind of process or vision. That's something um, my current company does very interesting. I don't think that a lot of other companies do it in the same way where basically debate is highly encouraged and we can call out the CEO uh, at any time and debate things. And, and, like, and it, it doesn't seem like that's a very common thing in other companies. Um, but it definitely, it were, uh, um, the CEO, he's a humanist. He's done studies on, on all the great books throughout Western civilization. And, uh, so it's like a very humanist oriented culture, uh, which I thrive in because I, I like the philosophical questions and I like those. And I do think that there's a, uh, connection, although the connection can sometimes be difficult to perceive between doing good business and then also, uh, philosophy and things like that. Do you, do you, do you find that yourself, do you find that there is a connection philosophy? What's your take on on the connection between philosophy and business, if any. Yeah, I mean, you you saw me smiling. I know people won't be able to see me smiling because they're only going to hear this. But yeah, absolutely. 
if it depends on if you're doing business with robots, then no, right? If you're one person sitting in a room and you're doing business with a, a robot, then probably not. But if you are doing business with humans, which most of us are, there is 100% the marrying of business and philosophy because the human behavior component comes into everything and how we figure out what we're going to buy, how we're going to interact with the tools and services that we've purchased. What do we think ROI looks like, a return on our investment, right? All of these things are very human driven. Um, and if you look around at the world, I mean, that alone tells you, like, we're not all wearing black t-shirts and white tennis shoes, right? Everybody's got different shirts on, different haircuts, different hair colors. That is all that human behavior meeting business. Uh, so you mentioned ROI. That's something we're, we're thinking a lot about. How do you, because uh, we, we talked about philosophy and the fact that philosophy is, is necessary when dealing with humans and humans are so subjective. They have such different, you know, subjective uh, projections. Uh, and then there's this thing called ROI, which we're supposed to prove. But every time I think about that from a philosophical angle, it always comes back to like, okay, well, there's a subjective human determining the value. And that, so that value then is, is subjective. Uh, and we're trying to find these objective measures, but it always comes back to that subjective kind of person that's, that's viewing those. Uh, there's a tension there. And I'm wondering how have you thought about that tension uh, and where, how's it, how's it shown up? Yeah. So a return on investment is only as good as, you know, the person that's invested in the product agreeing that they're getting a return on their investment. Um, so one of the things that I've done, you know, at multiple companies now is think through what I call like the value cycle and surfacing problem statements. So making sure you're training, you know, the customer success team or your account management team to get out and have the right conversations with the stakeholders to understand the problem statements that they're looking to solve for with the product or service that they're purchasing. And then having an agreement that if we deliver this, this is a return on investment. Um, and then following through and showing them how that was delivered, collecting new problem statements and doing it again and again and again. Mm -hmm. um, that is how I have solved for that natural tension. What I have seen people do, and this is a big mistake, is say, we've delivered ROI because we did exactly mm. what it says on our website. <laughs> if somebody is a, you know, doesn't completely match up with that persona, that might not match up with their definition of ROI. I actually saw a really funny uh, GIF or meme yesterday, and I shared it with the, my company. And it shows why personas shouldn't be about demographics and more about problem statements. And it has a picture of Prince Charles and Ozzy Osbourne, both men, both born in 1948, both raised in the UK, both married twice, both live in a castle, both wealthy and famous. But do you think Prince Charles and Ozzy Osbourne are solving for the same problem <laughs> statements? Just think, probably not. Yeah. Right. So that's how I tend to think about that natural conflict. Uh, do you think that, so uh, I, I, as soon as I started in this business uh, in March, um, we talked a lot about problems. Uh, you obviously talk about the problems as well because there's a problem statement. And then I kept on talking about it on Twitter and then somebody responded with something that made me think a lot, which was like, if you're always framing things as problems 
does that frame it as like an actual problem? Um, or like, does it create the problem by the framing? Um, does that make sense? It does, but framing it internally for your team is to surface these problem statements is different than framing it to your customers. These are, these are your problem statements. So I would say that internal messaging is different than external messaging. We're not going out and saying, tell me about your problem statements, right? Mm -hmm. We're asking probing questions to help surface friction or help surface maybe unexplored areas. Um, and, you know, you, you spin that in a positive way of this, we can help you solve. Mm -hmm. um, think about your life if this were, were true, right? Think about your business if we were able to achieve this together, like paint that happy picture, and then you march towards that. Mm -hmm. And that's for externally. Externally, correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. Uh, Okay, so we talked a little bit about philosophy, about ROI, subjective. Uh, so there, there are certain things that are intangible about value as well, uh, and also about problems as well. Uh, and and then there's the tangible stuff. Uh, I've been talking a lot recently. In the 1930s, all of our accounting measures they started to uh, you know measure all of this tangible stuff before the transition to knowledge work. Um, so that was, this was back, you know, when Henry Ford has the factories and. You know, the knowledge wasn't too crazy. Like you just, we know how to build a car. We just follow the processes to build a car. And now we've gone through this crazy evolution in business where we're all knowledge workers now. Uh, and it all comes down to more and more, we automate to machines, less and less kind of, uh, of that we have to, we have to think about. And now we're at these really complex problems and complex solutions. And so there are certain like intangibles, a lot of intangibles in those things. Um, and, but then it kind of goes back to that, that, that. Uh, subjective question, but like, how do you account for intangibles when trying to be really specific in business and being really like show the value and everything like that? How do you kind of account for those intangibles? So you probably don't know this about me, but I actually, I started out my career working in a factory running a screw gun. A what? A, a factory. I uh -huh. ran a screw gun. Manufacturing, manufacturing refrigerators. Interesting. And I would actually challenge you, growing up in the Midwest, in poverty, on a farm, oh. with everybody I knew, and still to this day know, working in factories. Mm. So haven't completely shifted as a society to knowledge worker. There is knowledge work. There is a huge portion of our population that is highly dependent mm. on manufacturing and other types of work that doesn't require, you know, a degree or doesn't require the knowledge of how AI works, right? Like, there is a huge, so I would first challenge you on that. Yes, mm. 1930s, there was a big shift, mm. would agree with you, but there's still a huge population that we shouldn't forget about, including mm. my brother who mm. works in maintenance at mm. a factory, right? Mm. Um, so that's thing one. Things two, in regards to those that are in knowledge work, and I'm not sure I like that phrase, just to be clear. Knowledge work? Yeah, I don't know why. It just, it doesn't, it it doesn't seem very inclusive. So I'm not sure if I, I like that. Uh, so I have, to, that's something you're going to make me think think about, Stuart. Yeah, sure. This call, I'm going to try to figure out why I don't care for that uh, phrase. Uh, but for folks that, aren't in something that's tangible, like I built 10 widgets, therefore 
these widgets are worth a thousand dollars. Therefore, I have produced a thousand dollars in, you know, in revenue for the company. Um, there are ways to figure out efficiencies and ROI of efficiencies or, um, you know, thinking through how to build out processes. So folks that, you know, or so, you know, process or things that do require human intervention, get the human intervention and things that can be completed through AI or mm. technology of some other sort can be done with that. Mm. Um, some of the things that I've done in the past, I'll, I'll just give you a few examples. Let's just, I worked in electronic signatures. If you think about the act before electronic signatures of printing a piece of paper, mm. signing said piece of paper, scanning that, then emailing it, that would take time. Now it's literally click, click, clickety click, and your signature is done. So you're mm -hmm. saving minutes, if not, you know, hours sometimes, depending on how big the paper packet is of time. That is tangible. If you can put an hourly wage to how much you're saving. There are things other way, like I worked at Swiftly, big data for public transit. If you shave a certain amount of minutes off a route, um, time is money. So hmm. that becomes tangible. It's not something you can hold, but in the, the world that we live in now, where time is money and everybody's busy, that becomes valuable. Hmm. Um, and so... And so what I was trying to get with the the intangible side is that there's a certain kind of there's risk uh, and then risk can be accounted for. It's very tangible, but then there's uncertainty and uncertainty. It's all about the future and the future state and the future state is pretty intangible unless unless, you know, people try to predict and people say that science is about prediction and everything like that. Uh, but it it if you're like me, I'm skeptical of those people, basically. The future is kind of open. It's not, it's not really, we can't really find out what's going to go on there. Um, and that all of the methods that we've developed are all trying to basically uh, make risk tangible. But at the same time, if we only focus on things that are tangible, then we basically are not dealing with the intangible and we're not really accounting for it. Um, do you have any idea of like how that's played out in your career in terms of looking into the future and trying to like, do you find that people who who only try to measure what's tangible end up in situations that are, I don't know, un challenging and such? I am not sure if I have an opinion on this, hmm. just to be quite frank with you. Um, I think that anyone who operates... 100% with a plan and expects everything to stay on plan all of the time mm. will be greatly disappointed mm. all of the time. So I'm not saying that somebody who operates, though, in a space one way or another, um, and I actually just went on just to Google mm. and Google tangible just to make sure, you know, that. I was getting what you were talking about, um, a thing that is perceptible by touch, mm. uh, per, you know, something that you can touch or you can, ass an assessment that can be made, right? I, I mean, life just doesn't work like that. 
Life just doesn't work like that. I wish it I wish it was that simple. I wish you could write a standard operating procedure for life and for business and say, if you do step one, two, three, four, then you will get five. Yeah. It does not work like that. I am living proof of that. I was a young single mom. I worked in a factory. I, you know, I set out on a very different path. I did not do one, two, three, four. I did not go to college fresh out of school. I went to work at the local factory and I got married. And, you know, as a, I, I can't believe it. You know, I was 21 with a baby, mm. right? I, I did not follow those steps that would have been written in stone. And I'm fine. Mm. And I, but I, I, I do think that there are folks out there that that's how they operate. And, and sometimes it works out really well and that's okay. So I, yeah, again, I'm not sure if this is a, a particular topic that I can delve into mm. too much further than that. Mm. Well, let's, let's go into the factory thing. Uh, given what's going on in the world right now, what do you think about what's going on in the world in terms of manufacturing in the United States, manufacturing international? Uh, what, what's your take on, on where we're at as a society? Do you think manufacturing is going to come back to the U.S.? Um, do you, what, uh, like in a bigger way than it already is, or what, what are your thoughts on that? I, I am not sure. Um, I do think that the empty shelves during COVID was a real eye opener for folks because supply chain is, it's so fragile. It's so fragile, especially when you're manufacturing it with a just in time supply chain. Um, resources in manufacturing, you have to be really careful to not manufacture too far in the future because you don't know what's going to happen to raw material price. You could, you know, manufacture super far in the future and then the price of a raw could just drop and you're forced to then sell everything at a loss, right? Mm -hmm. So we operate on a just-in-time model and import a lot. I don't know if we can afford to as a society onshore everything i i think that we've you know offshored maybe too much mm. um but I, can you imagine what the cost would be for simple little everyday things if we were to bring it on you know back to the u.s for manufacturing the cost right now is already through the roof on a lot of things with inflation this would further exacerbate that i would like to see more manufacturing come back though just you know, from my roots, I think that there is a huge population that depends on that work. And I was actually part of a company that closed and shuttered the doors. And a few thousand people were impacted in a very small community. And those individuals struggled for years to try to find new homes, try to find work. Because... Um, that was that was what they had known and mm. that was what their parents had known and their parents' parents, right? And every time the automotive industry has ups and downs and GM does layoffs, then, you know, there's just such a big a ripple effect of all the suppliers of GM and all the restaurants around the factories. And it just really, you know, coming from Michigan, I've seen the impact. Flint is living proof of the impact. So... I do think that we should bring some back, but I also am very aware that we can't, we wouldn't be able to afford it if we insured. 
the majority of the small stuff. Yeah. So. And that leads to kind of the elephant in the room in terms of like AI and maybe the same thing happening in terms of AI to a lot of other jobs. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, given your uh, unique perspective? Um, I don't know if I have a, a unique perspective or a perspective that's more informed than anyone else's. Hmm. I'm watching AI unfold now, and it seems like ChatGPT just happened overnight. And AI has been present for a long time. So uh, you probably have heard the name Zendesk before. They had a chatbot years ago. I was part of the beta program. Mm. And it wasn't a very smart bot, to be clear. Yeah. Like, it was literally going out and doing keyword search on your help center, um, trying to find articles to suggest to the people it was chatting with. What is going on? What's happening now, though, is super interesting. Um, the intelligence that's being built in, and I don't understand it. I will pretend to understand it, but the intelligence that's being built in is next level. I do know it is a data aggregator within itself, and it's not using critical thinking. Um, but I have seen some demos up, out there of some instances of AI that does seem to be very human-like. Mm. What do I think that's going to do to um, tech and the roles that are within tech? I'm on another webinar um, probably, I don't know, four or five months ago, mm. saying that I do think there's going to be a, a pretty big disruption mm. in tech mm. with AI once it gets to the point to where people can trust it and know that it's critical thinking is like a chef's kiss, right? Um, I do think there will be a pretty big disruption uh, in tech for folks that can be replaced. Mm. Um, so anything that doesn't require that, that mm. critical thinking. But, you know, we shall see. So you're saying that like that critical thinking aspect is the thing that will, uh, can be replaced basically. So, so I don't think it can be quite yet. Uh -huh. I think that's what's keeping people safe. Mm. I don't think it can be quite replaced yet. Mm -hmm. um, I think the minute AI catches up, maybe. And I don't know how long it's going to be. I have no idea. Like it felt like it felt like the you know ChatGPT thing came out overnight. That's how it felt. Yeah. Um, and it was, it's good, really good. I use it all the time. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> so. It's very, very helpful. Um, it's one of the few times where hype has actually matched what, what is out there instead of a kind of like a hype creating a, something that doesn't really exist in the same way that people um, perceive it to exist. Um, yeah. And so, okay. So this critical thinking aspect, what do you think is like, because it also seems that human beings, there's a lot of human beings out there without that critical thinking aspect as well. Um, uh, like, and if that goes away, is there anything else? And if that goes away in terms of job loss, is there anything else that humans have that can make them economically valuable? Or will we just move to uh, more uh, of enjoying our moral values or, or our, our, our existence, like as this thing that we don't need to create economic value because now we have the machines that do it. Um, is there anything else besides critical thinking that's that kind of humans will be able to do uh, better than machines? Yeah, it does. I have not even thought about this. You ask some tough questions, Stuart. <laughs> yeah. 
and uh, questions and uh and uh and it's uh like uh, i don't know the answers to these questions either so i don't i don't <laughs> I, I uh that's, that's why i love doing this show because it's like we can just we can think about them yeah i i i i don't know <laughs> i maybe i am naive in the fact that i like to pretend we're years and years and years away from this um it's probably very naive for me I do think, however, my son's generation, which I'm assuming you're probably close to or part of, he's in his mid-20s now, early mm -hmm. 20s. Um, I'm assuming this is something that that generation is going to have to really think about and solve. Mm -hmm. um, I do think there will be things like, you know, like customer service, customer support online. That's already being done by bots. Yes. You know that. We know that. You have a problem with Xfinity, you're not going to talk to a human. <laughs> it's just, it's not going to happen. That's already done. That's already and been that's, taken place. That's, uh, uh, and that's actually like a huge, I've been dealing with so many things recently where I get tra trapped inside of these large bureaucracies like FEMA. Uh, I had the, we had a huge snowstorm in my house and uh, it, cra it crashed the, the roof, the roof. Well, then I had to deal with the insurance company and the insurance company, although they have actual human beings, is so automatized and so um, sort of depersonalized that the human beings who do run into aren't 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 the most helpful. Uh, and uh, uh, and so there were no real automated systems. But now FEMA, I'm trying to get there's our area was declared um, a disaster zone. So FEMA is now applying assistance as well. And uh Interacting with FEMA is like insane. Uh, you were talking about the 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 signatures and and they actually like they have an electronic signature as part of their website, but it rejected my IRS document. So then I had to then they told me that I had to then go fill that out separately. But then they said I couldn't actually fill it out electronically. So then I had to and so and then I'm this is like this is like one of maybe like seven automated systems that I've been dealing with all the time, and it's so bad. Like the automated systems are so bad because they're just like they're not people like. So it's actually something. If ChatGPT or ChatGPT technology actually gets injected into that, that would be a delight for me um, uh, because <laughs> yeah. like how 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 crazy it is to deal with those systems right now. So um, I, I I will just say, just like anything in the world, the pendulum usually swings too far one way or another, mm. and then it kind of writes itself back in the middle. Mm. I mean, there was a huge push for offshoring all customer service, like you know in the Philippines and in, you know, other areas, like you will find tremendous BPOs and off, you know, offshoring options. And then it became, you know, a problem with doing business with certain demographics. They didn't want to talk to somebody offshore. So you had to think about like, who are we doing business with? And will they care if this is offshore? And then you had to onshore your customer service. It's and then it was like, holy smokes, our costs just went through the roof, right? And then they had to bring it back into the middle to where you have tiers. Like tier one, you're going to get offshore. Tier two, you'll get onshore, right? So like just like with anything, yeah. the pendulum usually, you know, like there will be trends and the pendulum will swing one way or another. People will demand a certain level of service or a certain experience and businesses will have to react or they will lose the business there are some monopolies out there where i don't think they ever worry about losing business right and i 
won't name names, but if you think about some very large companies that have notoriously have crappy business, like they don't have to worry about that because they're like the only game in town. Mm -hmm. That is not the case for most services. Most services, we have multiple options, which means they have to react and swing that pendulum back into the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's something interesting about this kind of competitive landscape, particularly for startups. And as somebody who's seen a lot of startups, um, uh, it's just like such a crazy world because it, it's so, so competitive and there, but it's not the, it's not usually not the competition that destroys a startup too. It's like internal things to that startup, you know, product market fit, um, everything like that. Uh, and this kind of leads to a deeper question about life as well, because life is also supposed to be that kind of competitive, you know, evolutionary landscape where it, it just like ex extreme things happen all the time. Uh, but then we in modernity have kind of isolated ourselves, at least uh, in the West and uh, Japan and other countries like that, where it's like where we actually have like huge food surpluses and we don't actually fall into these kind of really, really crazy things, although that might change in the future. Uh, do you have anything to say about this like competitive aspect of humanity and like how tense it is? And, you know, this doesn't necessarily need to be about business as well, but just in terms of like, like life is hard, it seems like. And, and. And um, yeah, it's just like, what, what? I don't really have a good question here, but like, how do you manage yeah. the stress of life? Look, I have been through, and I don't know if I can swear here, but I Go will. I've been through some, I've been through yeah. some shit, okay? I mean, I grew up in poverty. We didn't have running water in our house for three years and we had food insecurity. Yeah. My mother struggles with mental illness, and it was just a very challenging childhood. Yeah. And as an adult, I started out on a path that would would have created a challenging adult life for myself yeah. as well if yeah. I hadn't become a little bit more competitive yeah. and figured out how to get myself out of that situation. I wasn't competing with others around me, though. I was competing with myself, <laughs> trying to, and don't get me wrong. Yeah, there's always going to be a little bit of competition with others for the role, for the promotion, for, you know, you apply for a job, you're competing, right? You are. That's just the way it is. That's the way life is. I see so much goodness in the world, mm. in people. And what I tell my son, I'll tell everybody here. If you focus on everything that's going on with famines to the pandemic to, you know, the homeless crisis that we have or on how unhomed crisis we have going on in San Francisco to the messed up situation in the government and healthcare and all of these things, it'll make you just crazy. What I always try to tell everybody is, Focus on what you can impact in your ecosystem. Like many little pebbles will make a big splash. So volunteer, give back, meet people that you normally wouldn't meet, travel, get out, learn about other people, other perspectives, how people live. Like all of these things make life a little bit more bearable and more just more interesting and more easy, right? If you only watch the news all day and hear negativity, that is going to be the lens in which you see the world through. Mm -hmm. 
uh, it goes back to that subjective objective thing as well because it, it just like so depend. There's just millions of things going on even right now. There are millions millions of things going on in our perception, and we're focusing on a small range of those million of things based on our evolutionary environment. And then of that evolutionary environment, there's our personal history, and we're we're on this like little little tiny tiny little sliver of reality. And we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of like leeway in that in that um, in that in what we focus on in that in that sliver of reality, and we can kind of change it. Uh, and there's so much that can come from a sort of attitudinal shift to be like, okay, well, I can't really control that. And it's so wild that that like that that stoicism, that ability to not care about things that that changed, actually started from a slave in the in the Roman Empire. Is like a lot of people mm-hmm. identify uh, stoicism with Marcus Aurelius, but um, I think his name was Ep- Epictetus, but I'm not I'm not sure. Uh, but it's it started with a slave in the Roman Empire, uh, and then it's like. There are so many people out there who are in horrible, horrible situations and don't have that sort of sense of existential dread and are happy. Uh, and then there are people who have everything uh, and then they're unhappy. And it really like it it, it goes back to that subjective thing because it's not about the objective conditions. It's about the subjective understanding of those conditions. And uh, but then again, it's like if like there's a lot of work to do to get to that attitudinal shift as well like there's it's just like it's not a simple thing i think only i think very rarely does somebody come about about that ability to do the attitudinal shift without uh some sort of like intense experience throughout their lives of being kind of going through a lot of pain 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 and realizing oh okay <laughs> that's uh so that, that you know that that's not i don't need to react that way to that pain but that's like through habituation with sort of pain i mean we all have pain so but, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And don't get me wrong. Uh, I've been through years of therapy, <laughs> yeah. years of therapy and lots of self-reflection and, you know, thinking about when I am my best self, you know, how am I? How do I show up when I'm not my best self? What? Why? Why am I not my best self? Why am I showing up like this? Um, it may sound hippy dippy, right, to anyone that's my family or friends in Michigan hearing me this, but this is, you know, quite frankly, I think an important work that everyone should do. So. Uh, So I would love to talk about the hippy dippy connection, uh, particularly in the relationship uh, with startups. Uh, uh, A lot of people from outside of startups would probably say, oh, they're, you know, this is business. This isn't, this isn't hippie stuff. But then I find out that there are a lot of hippies or, and like, well, we have to get into what is a hippie, but uh, or like bohemians as well. And uh, what, what if you have a funny story about um, kind of the relationship between hippies and startups, uh, that would be f- funny to hear. Or we can just talk about that relationship, which like certainly exists, you know, whether it's Burning Man um, or, you know, like Esalon, which is now run by by startup people. Uh, so what, yeah, what's your been your experience in terms of this hippie business connection? Yeah, that's really funny you say that. So I, when I landed in San Francisco Bay Area, uh, you have to imagine, you know, 13 and a half years ago, and I came from a really buttoned up Michigan. And the first thing I see when I'm going into San Francisco for the first time is a, like a guy in a suit with flip flops on a skateboard smoking a joint. Like he was like literally, you know, like he didn't have like a full suit, but he he had like dress pants on, a button up shirt, a backpack, and he's smoking a joint at a light, waiting to go. And I'm like, where in the hell am I? And like, where 
am I? <laughs> so uh, it was the first moment I realized, like, Toto, I'm not in Michigan anymore. Um, and then, you know, it is true. Like, there is so much, like, free spirit, um, free thinking here in the Silicon Valley area. But I think that's what makes it so wonderful. Like, I came here and I always I felt like an outcast where I was, where I was from. I always felt like a little bit of an outcast that I had this desire to have more and mm. see more and understand more. And um, I came here and I felt like I belonged like, because it was I, I was accepted for, you know, the way I think and the way I look at the world and, you know, yeah, a lot of shit, bad shit happened to me, but like, it's okay to still be positive and have a positive outlook. Like I was just accepted um, into this community here and startups, that is what they are. Mm -hmm. There are communities of folks coming together, at least in the early stage startups, that they're trying to do things different, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's trying to disrupt the banking system or you hear it all the time and disrupt, disrupt, right? And until it gets to a certain size, it usually is a group of nonconformists coming together to build something cool. Then once it gets bigger, yeah, you kind of got to get your shit together and you have investors and you got to run the business in a certain way. But it doesn't mean you can't have fun and still have that community while doing it. But you do have to eventually grow up, right? That's, that's startups. That's yeah. startups. That's where we're at right now. Uh, we're like on the on the cusp of uh, hyper growth. Um, and so it's like the go time for getting for mature, maturity and getting together. And it's like a lot of contrarians all in one place, um, uh, which makes it like both highly interesting, but also crazy to, to work. Uh, <laughs> There's just so many different avenues for perception. You know, we're talking about the diversity, neuro, neuro, diver, neurodiversity is just like out of the out of the park, and like people come up with things that are just like so far outside of everyone else's understanding, uh, which creates so much tension. Um, and then, but then, and then maturing that is a whole another thing. Do you have any tips for us as to how to mature, uh, how to how to take that contrarian energy? But then also, like, the, there's also the fact of getting your shit together, and then. Like, how do you actually get your shit together as well? As a well, first of all, yeah, d make sure you don't lose what's important to you as a company and your culture. Every time you add another person, your culture changes. Mm. But be guardians of like the ethos of what makes your company you. Um, if you lose that, then you won't. One day you'll wake up and you won't recognize the company that you helped build. Right? Have you seen that? So that. Oh hell yeah, <laughs> a lot, a lot. More than I care to talk uh, about. I, you know, it, it happens all the time. You could talk to any startup person that's been through a few and I've been through, I'm on my eight. Uh -huh. You could talk to anyone and they'll be like, yeah, I woke up one day and I'm like, who the hell are these people? Why am I here? This doesn't feel like home anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so just, you know, be staunch guardians of what the core of the ethos are, as long as it's not going to stop progress. Like there, there can be like, the, a core. So that's thing one. Um, thing two, like, how do you, how do you get your shit together and how do you still have the ability to, to have that contrarian kind yeah. of thing and let it be healthy? So make sure everyone knows what 
the company is working towards, what the goals are, how they play into it, um, where debate is okay mm -hmm. and where it's not. Um, I always love healthy debate, but it's also exhausting sometimes. And when you, you said that you love to debate and you like to debate all the time, I was like, oh, Stuart, <laughs> like you would exhaust me because sometimes <laughs> I don't want to debate sometimes. Uh -huh. And I'm not saying I'm saying tops down. What I'm saying is we're going to come together and we're going to figure out the best path forward uh -huh. as a group and then roll with it. Right. But sometimes if it's like something that's very mission critical and it could be detrimental debate should be welcomed and highly encouraged right so figure that out if that's something that's important to you and the core of the company like we will debate things that could hurt the company hurt the reputation hurt our customers we will not debate things that are like building out a standard operating procedure mm. figuring out you know how we measure churn. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we're not going to debate these core things, but anything that will hurt our reputation, customer experience, um, hurt the team, like, mm -hmm. we will debate that. Mm -hmm. That is important. And that's part of getting your shit together, too. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know if that's helpful at all, but that's my, my two cents. Very helpful. Um, and so we got about five minutes left. Uh, Let's see. So we talked a lot about different things. Well, I would love to go back to if you have any insight, because you come from Michigan and Michigan had this period of intense entrepreneurship uh, that like really changed the way this country works. Um, and then it lost it. And now you're in this area that is also huge change to where the country from this entrepreneurship, from this kind of hippy dippy entrepreneurship. Uh, do you think there that do you think that Henry Ford and all those people who were in, in Michigan and the, and the created the car industry, do you think that they were bohemians or were they, did they have this sort of same sort of open, open-minded thing that San Francisco existed? Was Detroit like that back in the day? Maybe. I don't know. I wasn't yeah. alive then, of course. Um, <laughs> so yeah. I, I will say what Michigan has and what Detroit I think has was, of course, a desire to innovate. Um, but Michigan, Midwest folks mm. were hard ass workers, mm. hard ass workers. And I have that at my core. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I do have this bohemian thing about me. Um, but I am a hard ass worker and get shit done kind of person. And yeah. I think that's what was at the core of what was going on in the revolution. They wanted to figure out, how do we do this better? How do we do this? How do we improve this? Um, you know, how do we make more? How do we, you know, operationalize this? Mm. If I remember from my Michigan history back in like probably third grade, which was forever ago, yeah. um, I think that was the spirit of that revolution. Mm. And I think it kind of is the spirit of what's going on here as well. Yes, it's disrupting, but... It's also how do we how do we do more? How do we how do we become more efficient and free up ourselves from having to reset passwords and let the AI reset the password, mm -hmm. right? Like uh, stuff like that. What do you think about the San Francisco is dead talk uh, that's going on on the internet? Do you think Silicon Valley and San Francisco are dead, or do you think that there's a, a huge part that's still there? Well, I haven't sold my home, mm -hmm. so. Yeah. 
I do not think San Francisco is dead. I do think that tech is now dispersed all over. I'm seeing, you know, Silicon Slopes and Silicon Beach and Silicon, all these different pop-ups of Silicon Valley. But like, this is where the tech hub is, Hmm. you know, the original tech hub. I don't think it's dead. I think San Francisco needs a lot of love. I'm really sad. Hmm. Um, I actually, I'll be going in tomorrow night. Hmm. I'm very sad by the state of things. But if anyone can turn it around, I believe we can. I really do. I believe in the people. I believe in the innovative, you know, mindsets and thinking. Um, I think we'll turn it around. And I think tech is always going to view this area as a hub. Mm. Um, And maybe that's just because I live here. or Maybe that's optimistic me. If you ask somebody out in Utah, Salt Lake City, they'd probably say, no, Salt Lake is the next big thing. I I don't know. but. I think uh, anyway. I think it's I think I don't think it's I, I don't think the technology is going away. And it's been really interesting seeing on Twitter, like the, in the past six months, now that the uh, pandemic's fully over, is that the last six months I've been starting to see a lot of interesting stuff, like not just in uh, digital technology, but also in terms of like really interesting hard sciences. Uh, like one of my friends is doing, um, uh, you know, energy stuff that I still don't quite fully understand. But uh, like, like there's a lot of like hard tech things that are going on in San Francisco and like now a lot of the, a lot of the jobs, particularly for the early stage startups are not remote anymore. Like you got to come here, uh, yes. which, which is super interesting. So I don't yeah, think- a lot of my friends are, uh, a lot of my friends are going back to the office. I'm yeah. hearing it. They're going back two or three days a week. Um, and I think that'll be the beginning of the revitalization. Quite frankly, you need the foot traffic. Like I said earlier, with about the automotive industry, like it, it has the trickle down effect. This does too. Oh, you need that foot traffic to support the community. So I'm not saying one way or another that I think people should or shouldn't go back to the office, but I think that'll definitely help with revitalization. Mm. And also, lastly, like a lot of PE and VC firms mm. are here. They're here. Yeah. This is yeah. where the money is. Yeah. And people will center where the money is. Uh-huh. So. I know I'm seeing them pop up, of course, in other regions as well. I'm, I'm not naive to that, but like the majority live here still. Yeah, so. uh, yeah, the numbers are are clear that San Francisco is, is is still the leader in terms of venture capital. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. How can people, our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing? Yeah, they can just follow me on LinkedIn. I try to post a handful of times a week. Uh, I do a mix of leadership, customer success, and personal post. Um, so yeah, that's where you can find me. I'm not a I'm not a tweeter, and I'm so I'm not tweeting. Um, LinkedIn is about as much social media as I can I can handle probably uh, for my professional life. Well, it's probably <laughs> safer for your personal life as well. Who knows? Yeah, well, no, don't get me wrong. I have a I have a boatload of Instagrams documenting oh, yeah, my yeah, yeah, yeah. my dog's life, my travel life. But yeah. like for my professional world, it's just LinkedIn. So yeah. cool. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.